From PRX, the public radio exchange, in the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we listen back to a 2012 interview with Robert Rhodes, where he talks about his time with his family, where they lived among the Hutterites, a religious community that practices simple living and Christian communism. Later on the broadcast, our producer-at-large, Natasha Alford, reflects on the national tragedy of the violence and events in Charleston from over the summer. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. During the summer months, we're listening back to our old catalog of shows from our first years of broadcast. And today, we're listening back to one of the earliest shows we did, our interview with Robert Rhodes, who is a poet and former journalist and who for several years lived with his family in a Hutterite community. The Hutterites were part of the Radical Reformation, and like the Amish and the Mennonites, they have made their own peculiar peace with modernity. In particular, though the Hutterites do embrace technology, they have left behind the notion of personal property. And so during this time of his sojourn with his family among the Hutterites, Rhodes describes himself as a Christian communist. He wrote about this experience in his book Night Watch, An Inquiry into Solitude, alone on the prairie among the Hutterites. Rhodes and his family spent seven years among the Hutterites, from 1995 to 2002. As Rhodes explains, the Hutterites were not your average band of radical pacifists, and they were often persecuted for their beliefs, a persecution that they remember to this day in their education and their cultural lore. Since we first broadcast this episode, it became one of our most popular programs and, in fact, was the most downloaded program for more than a year. And I learned some interesting lessons from that because the Hutterites, though you would expect them to not uh, utilize technologies like podcasting, they turn out to be an incredibly tight-knit community. And once the word got out that we had talked to Robert Rhodes, the word spread fast. We're always thankful for any interest in our programming, and so we're thankful to the Hutterite community for helping to spread the word of our program early on, and we're thankful to you, our listeners today, for allowing us to share it with you again. We hope that you enjoy. Robert Rhodes, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I've asked you to begin by reading an excerpt from your book, Night Watch. Uh, this passage will set the stage for a lot of our discussion, so if you would. All right. This is uh, the beginning of uh, Chapter 3 of my book, uh, Night Watch, uh, Alone on the Prairie with the Hutterites. The first question people usually asked when they saw our family in the colony, for so seldom do people come and live the communal Hutterian way, is what were we doing in this place? What did we want there? How could we give up careers... Mine is a daily newspaper editor in Fayetteville, Arkansas. My wife in the business office of a large regional hospital. To live without television or fashionable cars 
among a people who speak an archaic Austrian dialect and wear a black-centric wardrobe that made us look oddly old-world. This, even as we surrounded ourselves with the latest in farming technology and lived in houses that were well-built, furnished with handmade communal equity, and provided freely to all who lived here. To many, we seemed vaguely Amish, or, on the other hand, like members of one of those gun cults that spring up on the high plains once in a while and lie dormant until their darker motives shred their invisibility. It's hard to give a clear-cut answer for any of this, or to convincingly explain our motives. To say we felt a true calling on our lives is only to hint at our motivations. We very deeply felt a kind of biblical enjoinder to part with the ways of the world and follow our faith in community with others of a like mind and spirit. We reached a point in our lives as a family, both of us having come from backgrounds of privilege, where we felt it was required of us to leave behind the ambitions and goals we had always pursued and to look for something much more fundamental. We were not the only people in the world to step aside like this, to look at life from an entirely different angle. We were just among the few to pick a place like this to do it, alone on the prairie among a people who had intentionally set themselves apart. By choosing this way, we were strangers among strangers, hidden in the riddle of our own anonymity. It was a life that, aside from its benefits and blessings, placed us beneath a sign of great contradiction. In many ways, our life in the colony made no sense, and it never would, even to us. That was our guest Robert Rhodes reading from his book Night Watch, An Inquiry into Solitude, Alone on the Prairie with the Hutterites. And so let's start out by delving into this question that you mention in the passage. Could you tell our listeners briefly what it was that drew you and your family into the community of the Hutterites? You know, um, <laughs> I've been asked that quite a few times, uh, maybe even hundreds of times uh, in the past 20 years before we went to the community and while we were there and in the years since we left, uh, which was about 10 years ago. And I still can't answer that question in a way that makes any sense. Um, I tell people now that I've written an entire book about this, and I still don't exactly know. I do know that there was just something about the Hutterites. I had first met Hutterites when I was a teenager uh, on a brief trip to Montana. Uh, but I didn't really know that much about them. Uh, I'd read about them, heard about them, but they had always just kind of remained in the back of my memory as this sort of this uh, strange kind of presence that uh, my memory had locked onto. And there was a something delightfully attractive about being able to, to go apart in a way like that and to live in such a radically different way from everyone else. Well, I imagine that many of our listeners are unfamiliar with even probably the name Hutterites. Would you mind uh, briefly sort of telling our listeners what are the basic beliefs of the Hutterites and how would we distinguish them from, say, mainline Protestants? 
Sure. Uh, the Hutterites are a uh, communal group. They live on, there's about 500 Hutterite communities in the United States and Canada. Um, they live on large farming communes. They're a Germanic, uh, Russian background people. They would probably most resemble outwardly the Amish uh, because they're a plain group. You know, they dress in plain clothes, have a relatively <clears throat> simple lifestyle, but uh, the Hutterites would never be caught dead driving horses and carriages. That, that They would never do that. They embrace all technology, especially any farming technology. And they live, you know, very much in tune with the modern world in that way. But uh, they also shun some of the things that most people take for granted, like television, things that the Hutterites would call worldly amusements, you know, things like that. Uh, but what sets them apart is this communal aspect. Uh, they live in these large communities with no real claim to personal property. The, everything that's, it's, that's in the community is owned uh, kind of corporately. Uh, and, you know, we people in the communities have their own homes, you know, and their things and their houses and their clothes and books and things like that. But as far as being owners of, of those things, it's all owned by the community. Uh, the farmland, the, the millions of dollars in farm equipment, you know, those things are all held by this collective. And that's what really sets them apart probably from most uh, groups you, you see or, or even religious groups. In this way, they are probably the most similar to a monastic community, a Catholic or, or Anglican monastic community. Except that, of course, you know, the Hutterites have families and, uh, you know, marry and have children and that sort of thing. This, uh, th this monastic parallel, though, has some historic merit, though, because many of the very, very early Hutterites in the days of the Reformation, uh, some of the early leaders were, in fact, former Benedictines. And if you were to look at the inner workings of a Hutterite community, how it's organized, how the leadership is organized, um, you would find many common common uh, denominators with uh, a Benedictine community of today. In Minnesota, where we lived in, in a Hutterite colony, we were not far from St. John's Abbey, which is, a, I believe, the largest Benedictine community uh, in the world. And I, I knew quite a few of the uh, the monks there, and they all were astonished by just, you know, 100 miles away from them was this place that ran on much the same principle <laughs> as where they lived. It's interesting to me because in politics today, you hear the word socialism used as, right. an, as an insult, an attack word. Uh, but I wonder, what was it like to live in an actual community ordered around, arguably, socialist or even communist ideals? Yes, we were definitely communists. We certainly were communists. I used to tell people that, and it always sort of took them aback. You know, and, and you had to be quick to explain that we were not Marxists, but we were, were Christian communists. The, the whole Hutterite way of life is based on what the Hutterites regard as an enjoinder from Christ to, to give up to give up everything and and to to put everything at the feet of the apostles and and to hold everything in common as you read in the Book of Acts about the early Christian church um, in, in its first days where the people banded together and they held everything in common and um, lived that way. 
And that's that's exactly where the whole uh, Hutterite lifestyle is drawn from uh, originally. Uh, other things that set the Hutterites apart, probably from other religious groups, um, are things like uh, non-resistance. The Hutterites do not take part in, in the military or in, 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 in wars or anything like that. They uh, don't use weapons. You know, they remain totally nonviolent. Uh, it, some people will term that as being pacifist, but it goes beyond that to to, to, to something much deeper and more spiritual. Uh, I think than just say having an opposition to war or violence. Uh, the Hutterites take that even further, um, as do many uh, the so-called peace churches, like the Amish, the Mennonites, uh, the Quakers, in, in, into other aspects of their lives as well, into interpersonal relationships, and uh, even their approach to government, and how we approach government and, and deal with uh, various social issues like that. But definitely, we were communists. We, we, we lived... Uh, very much the communist ideal, I guess you would say. Um, ironically, like a lot of the Marxist communists in the world, we were lavishly wealthy. We, we were wealthy farmers and lived a very uh, uh, comfortable lifestyle. Uh, at the same time, uh, none of us could really claim to even own the shirts on our back, realistically. Of course, we, we did, but, but uh, legally or whatever, you know, we didn't have anything. You know, we were supposed to, and that was supposed to be carried on not only in a material sense, but, but spiritually as well, is that we were reduced to nothingness and, and that we relied on, on our faith to, to, you know, to provide and, and to take care of one another. We're listening back to a 2012 interview with Robert Rhodes. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. So I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about our partner in producing this show, the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. It sounds like an old-timey name, and that's because it's been around since 1908. It started out as a weekly event on Sunday evenings, hence the name, with thousands of people attending each week to hear uplifting messages from business people, preachers, statesmen, and philanthropists. In the 1920s, they went coast-to-coast on the radio. In the 1950s, they started one of the first religious television programs anywhere, ever. And they're still doing radio and television to this day. The Sunday Evening Club makes regular, hour-long documentaries for PBS, highlighting the good being done by faith communities as they try and make situations better for the people of Chicago. You can find out more about the Sunday Evening Club and watch and listen to all the programs that they've been producing for more than 50 years at their website. That's csec.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to an archived 2012 interview with Robert Rhodes. From 1995 to 2002, Rhodes and his family lived on the prairie with the Hutterites, a religious community founded on the ideals of the Gospels and Christian communism. He writes about this experience in his book Night Watch, an inquiry into solitude alone on the prairie among the Hutterites. Well, you mentioned a moment ago... uh, this idea of the Hutterites being non-resistors, and you classified them sort of roughly with the other peace churches like the Quakers. And I'm, I'm curious because you mentioned in the book that you were in the Starland community during the 9-11 attacks, and I'm, I'm interested, what was that experience like to be in a radically pacifist environment when that experience was occurring? Well, 
you know, I, I write about this in, in Nightwatch about the experience we had um, as observers of the 9-11 attacks. Um, even though in our homes we didn't have television, uh, we did have a television in our school that was uh, connected to a, it was used for educational purposes, you know, to watch films or whatever, video cassettes or DVDs, that kind of thing. But uh, strangely enough, we would uh, we had a way to kind of rig the, the television with, <laughs> with kind of a homemade antenna. Uh, so when things of interest happened, like uh, it seemed like we always enjoyed watching the election returns. Uh, so we could <laughs> rig up the television to actually watch some things on TV of, that were of note like that. But when we heard about the 9-11 attacks on the radio that morning, um, it just kind of spontaneously evolved. People went to the school you know, where the television was, and they rigged up the TV, so we actually were watching these things as they happened. It was just as shattering and, and upsetting and devastating to us in the community um, as it was, you know, for everyone else. At the same time, at, when this uh, groundswell of, uh, some people would call it patriotism, uh, but this groundswell of, in this, this drum beating for you know for some sort of military reprisal against this happened. Uh, it really it, it left us in kind of a strange uh, situation. We didn't share in that. That wasn't what we wanted. What the people you know of that mindset wanted to see happen. They didn't want to see more violence. Um, strangely enough, when the Hutterites began in in the 1500s, uh, because of their of their their non-resistant approach and refusal to serve in the military, the Hutterites were widely persecuted and even murdered uh, you know, for this belief. And their communities early on were almost like communities of resistance. They were these kind of islands amid uh, you know, these large militaristic uh, societies. Strangely enough, when, when uh, you know, the bombing in Afghanistan began and then later during the run-up to the war in Iraq, for a while, it seemed like we were almost going back to that again, where, where the community was sort of a community of resistance in some ways. And uh, we certainly weren't as public as the early Hutterites were in, in proclaiming you know, this uh, opposition to war. But uh, not so long ago, the Hutterites certainly were uh, very public about that. During World War I uh, in the United States, the Hutterites had not been in the United States for terribly long. Two Hutterite men were killed uh, in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, in the U.S. disciplinary barracks. They were arrested because they refused to serve in the military and during World War One, and basically were tortured to death in the prison there. Uh, first, they were put in Alcatraz, then they were taken to, to Fort Leavenworth, and that's where they died uh, after uh, weeks of uh, terrible privation and, and punishment. And uh, that that single singular experience was deeply uh, burned into the Hutterite psyche. If uh, you even ask a Hutterite school child about that, they can tell you a great deal about it even today. And uh, an experience I had uh, when we lived in the community was we uh, were in South Dakota where these men had lived in their community and, and their graves. In, in, in their colony graveyard, underneath their names uh, is a word you don't see very often attached uh, to a grave in the United States, but it was the word martyr. These men were martyrs to 
you know, to their, to, you know, to their co-religionists, and uh, they're still regarded that way, you know, among Hutterite people today. These these two men were martyrs, you know, for you know for their for their religious beliefs, and uh, that 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 kind of feeling started sort of started to creep back into the community. It seemed like uh, after nine eleven, we we found ourselves not riding this crest of, uh, of uh, patriotic, uh, militaristic buildup. You know, that, that wasn't what we were about at all. And uh, people didn't uh, confront us about it like they did the, the communities uh, during World War One or World War Two, where moderate communities were often vandalized, you know, by, <clears throat> by people because they refused to buy war bonds and that sort of thing. But... Uh, that same mindset was there. Uh, still, there was one older gentleman in our, in our community who had actually been in jail, who had been jailed for refusing to uh, uh, answer the draft, I believe, during World War II. And, and so, you know, we still had people around us who, who had lived this in a rather direct way, you know, uh, as conscientious objectors. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We're listening back to a 2012 archived interview with Robert Rhodes. He's the author of Night Watch, An Inquiry into Solitude, Alone on the Prairie Among the Hutterites. I want to follow up on this idea because you, you've described how Hutterites personally were very involved in, in resistance to war and in fact suffered and died as martyrs as a result of that. But you also mention in the book that Hutterites would never march in anti-war demonstrations, and this seems to me to be somewhat incongruous. Could you could you explain what you mean by that distinction? It is incongruous, and, and the Hutterites are, are an incongruous people. Uh, uh, it seems that um, you know there are certain lines that the Hutterites will not cross. Uh, there are. Uh, such as not serving in the military, not taking part in, in armed violence of any kind, for instance. That's, that's one extreme example, I suppose. On the other hand, they like to tend to keep sort of a low profile um, also in, in society. Um, and uh, even though many Hutterite people, if they've spent much time thinking about it, you know, kind of like people in mainstream society, most Hutterite people you would speak to would be against, for instance, the death penalty. They also would be against some other things that, that people might not agree with them about, uh, like they would also be very uh, pro-life in some ways, but not pro-choice, strangely enough. It, it, it's very contradictory, um, and it's informed by as much contradiction as, as people in mainstream society. You know, Their views make about as much sense. But... They, they, the Hutterite people do not like to go and become involved in big public demonstrations and or become standard bearers for for certain for certain causes and or you know, social issues, even though they might totally agree with people who are uh, involved in that way. It's just sort of a. It, it seems to. I, I I heard other Hutterite people describe it as sort of a a, a built-in inferiority complex that the Hutterites have uh, about mainstream society. They 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 know what their views are, but they don't feel the confidence of of their views enough to go out and, and make an issue of it, and state and to become uh, to become outspoken about it. 
I'm not sure I can explain why that is. On the other hand, we uh, would do strangely contradictory things, uh, for instance, in our community. Um, even though we did not send our children to public schools, we had our own schools. Um, and at the same time, because we were large landowners in, in our county in, in Minnesota, we were probably the biggest landowners of all. Uh, our tax dollars played a huge role in supporting the schools, you know, in, in a very uh, extremely rural, uh, somewhat impoverished part of Minnesota. And we became, strangely enough, sort of uh, promoters of, of, of raising our own property tax. <laughs> Uh, to encourage other people to vote uh, for you know you know more support from tax dollars for the you know for the local schools, it, it was a real strange kind of thing to have happen. I it, it it confused a lot of people, but but we saw that that even though we would wind up paying more money, it was it was incumbent on us to be good neighbors to the people around us by supporting you know more support, for instance, for the schools. Because the schools would help the economy and uh, would help draw more people, you know, the thinking went, you know, that part of Minnesota and hopefully would create more jobs. So, you know, we, we kind of got involved in that at one time, I remember, which was kind of, kind of new, new territory for the Hutterites, it seemed like, in, in, in Minnesota anyway. Well, with your mention of, of the schooling of children, it, it occurs to me that two of your own children were born in the Starland community. And began yeah. growing up there. And I wonder, now that it's 10 years past you're leaving that community, how do they view that experience a decade on? Well, our two older children, our daughters, probably remember it the best. Uh, our oldest daughter, Shelby, who is 19, uh, was born before we went to the community, but was only like three years old when we went there. And she began school in the community, strangely enough, because uh, she could read. We had taught her to read at a relatively young age. She began kindergarten uh, a year sooner than most children, you know, of her age would have. And even though she went to a colony school and uh, didn't study some of the same things the kids in the public schools might have might have studied at the same time. She wound up graduating from high school basically a year sooner than everyone else, you know, in her age group and starting college and that sort of thing. Uh, but our kids have a very positive memory of, of, of the community uh, as much as they remember it. Our youngest child, uh, this little boy, remembers uh, some of his friends in the, in the colony and, and certain events that happened, a Christmas program or something like that, but uh, doesn't have really full fully formed memories, I guess, of it. Uh, but our but our older children do, and um, they uh, can talk quite a bit about it. Uh, and and have kept in touch with a few of their friends who were in the colony. And uh, yeah, I have have generally very positive positive memories at that time. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to an archived 2012 interview with Robert Rhodes, the author of Night Watch: An Inquiry into Solitude. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Well, in the book, you describe not only joining the community, but also leaving it. In your description, there still seems, though, to be a lingering connection, at least at the end of the book. It's, it's a tenuous connection, but still it seems to be there. 
But could you tell us a bit about why you left the Hutterites and what it was like returning to the real world? Yeah, the um, it was extremely difficult to come to terms with, with wanting to leave the community. And, and I spent a lot of time in the book going over a variety of reasons. Uh, it wasn't as if uh, we were looking for a reason to leave. In fact, we were looking for a reason to stay. But honestly, the cultural differences between people like us who had come from a certain type of background in a totally different part of the country, um, who had gone to live with these people, uh, who lived a totally different way than we had ever had ever lived, it was extremely difficult to, to, to bridge those those uh, cultural gaps. And uh, I, I've uh, described it to some people who I've talked to us about. Uh, it, to me, it was almost like us going to live with a group of Eskimos uh, for all the difference it made. Uh, it's, it's almost that big of a gap, uh, I think. I, I don't think that's really much of an exaggeration in some ways. Do you think that you ever would have felt like an insider to the Hutterites if you had stayed longer? We did feel like insiders to a certain degree. We were there for six years and and were actually members of the community. Uh, so in that way, we couldn't have been more, more of an insider. But I think certainly as, as time had gone on, if we had remained there, certainly we, we would have felt in some ways like we were more a part of uh, or part of the culture, really. Not so much the community, but as part of the culture, I guess. Uh, at the same time, we there were a lot of conflicts going on in the community and in the Hutterite Church as a whole that had absolutely nothing to do with us, and, and that we weren't going to really be able to make any kind of a contribution to solving. Uh, these were things that face any kind of a group of people in, in a changing society, uh, in a changing world. And uh, there were also a lot of religious issues uh, that the Hutterite Church was facing that had nothing to do with us. And yet we were kind of caught in the middle of some of this that was going on kind of coincidentally with the same time as we happened to, to come there. And it became such a frustration to not only to us but to other people in the community, uh, all these things going on at once. And uh, it just seemed over time over the past year or so that we were there, that we were probably expending a lot more energy in just trying to endure these differences than than in trying to just live our lives. Other things, too, that, that played a role was because uh, I have two daughters, the, the, the opportunities for women, especially in, in, the, in the communities, are not as great, although increasingly they are. The, the, the gender roles in, among the Hutterites are very traditional in that way. Uh, it, it sounds like uh, what you were just saying, that, that you may have uh, sort of a, a, a bittersweet memory of, of your time in the community and that leaving the community was very hard. Do you ever regret leaving the community? Strangely enough, no. And it's not that, that, we're, that we, in the long run, were glad we left. But we knew that we had what we thought or hoped were good reasons for leaving, and you know we had uh, certain ideas about the kind of life that we wanted to live once we left the community. I think that was very important. We we uh, a lot of 
for instance, Hutterite young people will leave the community for a while and, and kind of go and sow their wild oats, so to speak, uh, in, in cities or whatever. And they tend to kind of really go to extremes <laughs> um, and kind of live as, as un-Hutterite a life as they can, uh, just to kind of see what it's like, basically to get it out of their system and to see if they want to go back and, and live you know, the way their families have lived. Uh, that wasn't our the case for us. We left the community changed people. We went there with certain ideals in mind of wanting to live a very separate, uh, much quieter, much simpler type of life. And we left the community having done that and having experienced that and yet gone even further than that, even further into that than we would have ever imagined. And so we left the community as changed people, as people who, who were not the people who went to the community at all. And, and so we carried a lot of that, you know, into, into this new life, you know, that, that we had started over again. But, yeah, we've certainly never regretted leaving. We often wished, and I still wish sometimes, that, that, uh, it didn't have, it didn't have to be that way, that, that we could have maybe found a way to have stayed there. But at the same time, we've, all of, all of the people in our family have had experiences and, Gain new new insights and seen and done things we would never have been able to do uh, in the community if we had not lived. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 interview with poet and author Robert Rhodes. He wrote the book Night Watch, an inquiry into solitude alone on the prairie among the Hutterites, in which he describes his time with his family living in a Hutterite community. You can find out more about his work and his writing at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. Each week, I hear from listeners who write in to say that they're enjoying the show, and a lot of them ask me what they can do to help to support us. And first of all, I just want to let everyone know that we appreciate so much that you're listening, and thank you. The number one thing that you can do to help support us is to tell your friends about the show. If you listen to us through iTunes, it would also be fantastic if you took a moment to write a review. And if you want to, you could give us money. Earlier in the show, I talked about the partnership that we have with the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. And so many good things come from this partnership. But one of the best, by far, is that your donations to our show are now tax-deductible. You can find out more about supporting us at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. And again, thank you for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. This week, we're listening back to one of our earliest shows, a 2012 interview with Robert Rhodes, the author of Night Watch, An Inquiry into Solitude, Alone on the Prairie Among the Hutterites. So, as we look at, at your time with the Hutterites and your mention a moment ago of the contingency of the Hutterite communities, that they exist by the grace of God and at any moment they could disappear. And you mentioned they've been around for 500 years, but maybe in 10 years they won't be around anymore. And, and as you say, how easily you know, things can change and, and influences can lead to one, you know, one thing to another. I see the Hutterites... I heard a lot of Hutterite people say 
that they didn't know if their way of life would, would survive, you know, for another generation or two or, you know, who knows. They, the outlook that I guess I experienced when we lived in the community was that really all you could count on was, you know, the next five minutes, basically. Uh, but that's not a fatalistic view. It's, it's, it's actually a view that has a, a great deal of hope in it because, uh, you know that there's something beyond the next five minutes or the next, 10 years or the next 100 years. Uh, and deep down, a person of faith believes that whatever does come, you know, next, or whatever comes next after that, is supposed to happen, and that it's an expression of the grace that uh, all of us have to live by, and that all of us are blessed with, I guess, and and, and that allows us to survive and, and to, to keep living lives of faith or lives of interpersonal expression, you know, like this poem, and sad. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, there are so many, you know, different forces, I suppose, that, that, that pull at, at groups like the Hutterites, uh, or at, at any kind of group of people who are trying to live together and, and do a certain thing. And, uh, uh it's, it's so hard. To live that way, it's so hard to live with other people. Period. No matter what you're trying to achieve, but to live that kind of a life of faith uh, is such a, it's such a difficult undertaking. Uh, it it it's so hard. Uh, I, I'm often reminded of a quote uh, by by Thomas Merton. I can't remember it verbatim, but I should I should be able to. I used to have it in uh, you know, a. You know, in a frame on, on, on my desk uh, when we lived in the community. <laughs> and it comes from uh, his book, uh, Seeds of Contemplation. And uh, it, it goes something like, uh, even saints cannot live with saints uh, without experiencing uh, the pain of the differences that come between them. And Merton compared the body of Christ this case, to, to a body of broken bones uh, that, that, that only is healed again, you know, through grace. Uh, that was what it was like to live in the community. When I saw that quote from Merton in that book, I thought, this is exactly what's happening here. Whether you're in, in, in a Hutterite community or the Abbey of Gethsemane or just living with your family uh, in a town someplace, that's what it's like. We're all part of a body of broken bones. And, uh, and it's only grace that, that's, that's holding us together. Have you returned since your, your departure? I have. In fact, of our family, I'm the only person who's ever, who's ever been back to the community again. But I've been back I've been back there three times uh, for brief visits uh, in the past 10 years. It's been almost exactly 10 years since we left there. And uh, so much has changed. We, uh, our family, not only had changed, but the community has changed too in that in those ten years. Some of the people who we lived with uh, left the community themselves uh, to go and live, kind of in in you know, out in the world, or they joined other uh, religious groups. Some of them did. There was a lot going on, and, and other people uh, have died. Uh, and some of our friends in, in other colonies uh, have died, and, and that that was really hard for us. Uh, process that because these are people we were very close to and lived with you know, for so long. Um, 
but but a lot has changed in the community since we since, since we left, and um, it's it's the same in certain ways, but it's it's really different too. Um, uh, it seems though that some of the conflicts, I guess that 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 uh, weighed so heavily on us, some of the interpersonal things, those things seem to have smoothed out a bit uh, since we left, and, and that's good because it means that. Uh, the community where we lived anyway has found a way to to, uh, to carry on. Um, just because generations of people and their ancestors have lived together and done this type of thing for 500 years doesn't mean that they'll be able to continue to do it for another 10 years even. That's very central to the Hutterite worldview, is, is that this uh, way of life is contingent entirely on, on their grace that uh, comes from God to live that way. Uh, and, and it's very much within the Hutterite way of thinking that, that this life could be taken away from them at any time, uh, that their uh, nice communities could be blown apart by, by something that they might not even see coming. Uh, and this has happened in the past, in, in, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, you know, war, famine, uh, plagues, pestilence of many kinds totally destroyed, you know, some of the Hutterite communities. And, Cast them to the wind. So the HUD is very much a part of that of that mindset that, that nothing is guaranteed, uh, that everything's going to change, and um, keeping that communal way and, and, and living that way is is it comes directly from God as far as the right people are concerned. Well, Robert Rhodes, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. We've been listening back to a 2012 interview with Robert Rhodes. He's a poet and a former journalist. He's the author of Night Watch, an inquiry into solitude alone on the prairie among the Hutterites. You can find out more about Robert Rhodes and his work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Unfortunately, these days it seems like we can't go more than two weeks without a major national tragedy. Earlier this summer, of course, it was Charleston, South Carolina, an event that rocked the entire nation and even brought the President of the United States himself to the podium to offer words of condolence and to share in our national confusion as to why this violence keeps happening. Our producer at large, Natasha Alford, offers this reflection on the events in Charleston. The June 17th shooting massacre inside Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, brought the nation to its knees in shock, grief, and prayer. In the aftermath of the attack, people of all faiths tried to come to grips with a crime that offended every sense of morality. Like an awful flashback, many of us couldn't believe that in 2015, someone would walk into a house of God where people were studying the Bible and shoot them in cold blood, in the name of racism, in the name of hatred. At the time, I was working as a news reporter and had to go into the newsroom the next day after the massacre. But I felt too emotionally exhausted to even pitch a local angle for the story. I simply could not remain objective. I was hurt and angry and discouraged. And so, like many people across America, the day after the shooting, I went to church to take part in a vigil and simply be in the presence of others. God, we know that you still sit high and that you are looking down the Lord God and that you're more than able to heal our land, Lord God. God, 
God, I heard so many conversations today from co-workers and others just saying, I ended up at Baber AME Church in Rochester, New York, the same church Pastor Norvell Goff taught at for more than a decade before being summoned to take the helm at Mother Emanuel in the wake of the shooting. Reverend Goff would serve in the place of Reverend Clemente Pinckney, one of the nine people murdered that night of June 17th. Inside Baber AME, I was comforted at the sight of people from all backgrounds. I'd visited months before, but today there weren't just the usual brown, smiling faces of the mothers of the church, usher board, and so on. There were white people, Asian people, Latino people, Jewish people, and people of different Christian denominations. In the crowd, I met a young man named Jamal, who told me why he came to the vigil. I wanted more for the victims and uh, the family, the Christian, you know what I mean? This whole tragedy affected the whole body of Christ. Uh, a gunman went into the, he defiled the sanctuary, you know what I mean? Also in the crowd, I met a member of Baber AME named Wanda, who said she'd recently lost a family member to gun violence, and the news of Charleston hit too close to home. This morning, I was at a loss of words. I was angry. I have family members in Charleston. Just didn't know how to feel. And I just leaned on other people as they called and, you know, prayed. It just made me feel better knowing that just trusting God, he was listening. And then I met an older man named Joe. He was Caucasian but said he'd lived and worked in the predominantly black Bahamas. When I asked him what drove him to visit, I saw the emotions well up. And then the tears began to roll. Grief. This was all supposed to be sorted out, you know, a long time ago. It's just unacceptable. Enough. And I just didn't know what else to do. You know what I'm saying? Didn't know what else to do. So there we were, each with our different reasons for coming, but all in God's house under one roof. And the people of God wasted no time in getting to work. We got to turn down racism. We got to turn down racism. No one can turn down racism at the love of God. Because God doesn't go by what color you are. God doesn't judge about what size you are. One by one, speakers took the podium during the 75-minute service, speaking of history, collective grief, and the hope they still had for the country. And they prayed and charged the audience with jumping into action after the morning was done. Because like Jesus' garden parable in Matthew 13, the difference between a garden full of weeds and wheat was in the hands of the worker. I've discovered that if we don't leave from here and go and work the garden, that the weeds will choke out the light in Rochester. The Reverend James C. Simmons. If we don't leave from here and work the garden, gangs rise in our community. If we don't work the garden, there's blood spills in our streets. If we don't work the garden, our children die. If we don't work the garden, that hatred has its way. And I refuse to let hatred have the last word. After the reverend closed, we held hands as a congregation, sang the benediction, and started to go our separate ways. I wondered if other people felt as spirit-filled as I did leaving that building. I was sad, but in the unity of the moment, I saw God at work. And so I asked them, what, if anything, could be the takeaway from this tragedy? 
I found Jamal outside. Despite the sermon talk of healing racism, Jamal told me the crime of Charleston came down to one main thing. This whole tragedy happened because of godlessness, you know what I mean? Bad things have to happen, you know, for the for greater good. God knew he was going to be betrayed. God also knew Judas Iscariot wasn't the only one that was going to betray him. Peter betrayed him too, you know what I mean? We just as Christians had to realize, gain the wisdom and, and stick to the word of God, you know, that's just going to get us through this. That's the only thing that's going to get us through this, you know what I mean? I saw Wanda passing out flyers after service and approached her to find out what she took away. This is really about faith. Has your faith been getting you through yes. understanding everything happening in America right now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Believe it or not, it does. You know, at first, you know, yeah, of course you're going to be angry, you're going to get outraged, but then, you know, it's like you sit down and you find that inner peace. It just comes over you and it's like, it's a peace you can't even explain. Powerful words from a woman who woke up angry that same day. I took her flyer. It was for a summer prayer and peace meeting in the city. She was on to something and on to getting the work done. And finally, there was Joe, as someone who lived outside the country for so long and had come back to the reality of the United States. I had to ask. Did you leave with any hope today? Did you feel encouraged in any way? I mean, from here? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I'm thinking, well, this is happening in Rochester it isn't exactly the epicenter of the world. It's probably happening in Cleveland and Jacksonville and Detroit and Kansas City. I mean, I've got to believe this is not unique here, that it must be happening in our Bahamaland and throughout the Caribbean and, quite frankly, the EU and, quite frankly, China and, quite frankly, the world. It's true that the world was watching Charleston, and it would continue to watch the United States as news broke in the days following. A confession from the 21-year-old shooter Dylan Storm Roof. Declarations that the Confederate flag must come down from the South Carolina State House. A eulogy from the President of the United States. And even a little amazing grace. But that night, I walked home from service and felt myself regaining composure, more of an objective look at my feelings of shock and helplessness. Maybe I couldn't end all racism, curb violence, or change hardened hearts, but I could do my job. From where I was, I could change the small worlds. And so the next day, I pulled myself together and reported on Charleston, indirectly from a different angle, a number story about hate groups across the country, and it was generally well-received. I did my small part hoping someone somewhere would watch it or read it and do something with it. And doing something, after all, is really the best way to honor the Charleston victims. They were Cynthia Hurd, 54 years old, Susie Jackson, 87, Ethel Lance, 70 years old, Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor, 49, Tawanza Sanders, 26 years old, Reverend Daniel Simmons Sr., 74, Reverend Sharonda Singleton, 45, Myra Thompson, 59 years old, and the Honorable Reverend Clemente Pickney, 41. 
They lived by example, walking by faith and not by sight as they welcomed the man who would take their lives into their church home with open arms, tending to their gardens, sowing a harvest until the very end. Our producer at large, Natasha Alford, is a multimedia journalist with a background in education. She's a graduate of Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, and she works as a reporter in Rochester, New York, and Chicago, Illinois. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Jeff Kraus engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.